you got to get rid of the bots. Everybody's voice should have the same influence. One person should not be able to amplify their influence because they're amplifying it through millions of fake accounts. The position, the opinion that hundreds of thousands or millions of people are taking could actually be the opinion of one person. And you need to be able to differentiate that. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Joining me today is Dan Woods, Head of Global Intelligence from F5. And today, we're discussing your background, what you've seen, and your recent research around Twitter bots. So Dan, thanks for joining. It's good to speak with you again. I did meet you when you were out here in Sydney at a conference. So I'm quite well versed in your background and your experience. So I really want to start there. Now, as you know, I read your bio at the recent Future of the Future of Security event here in Sydney. Your profile is pretty impressive with some of your career highlights. I mean, there was a lot of them, but I think just for our audience's knowledge, you were pursuing high value targets in the CIA and the FBI helping investigate the 2001 anthrax attacks. So maybe just to, you know, our, our audience values uh, people like yourself in terms of caliber. So I'm really keen, maybe if you can share a little bit more about a little bit more about your career and yeah, what you what you've been up to the last couple of years. Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, most people are drawn to my FBI and CIA experience, but really I started my career as a beat cop in the Phoenix, Arizona area. You know, it isn't exactly cybersecurity, but there's nothing like going from call to call, dealing with the criminal element, interviewing witnesses and interviewing victims that gives you some perspective and teaches you the criminal mindset. So I I spent uh, five years working a beat and that was really the most impressionable experience in my entire career. It wasn't exactly, you know, investigating computer crimes. I remember my dispatcher sent me to a computer crime after I finished my engineering degree. And when I got there, I had learned that it was a domestic violence and somebody had just thrown a computer through a window. So she had coded it a computer crime just to give me a hard time. But I realized at that point that if I'm going to be in cybersecurity, I'm going to have to leave. So I became a, a CIA operations officer. That was a great job. I traveled the world helping our human intelligence sources use specialized tools to expand their access and collect information of interest to policymakers. I I loved that job. But at 36 years old, I left to join the FBI. And the only reason I did that is because FBI has an age limit. You, they will not hire you if you are 37. They won't hire you to be an agent if you're 37 or older because they have mandatory retirement at 57 and you have to have 20 years in. So I didn't like the idea of turning 37 and burning that bridge, never becoming an FBI agent. So I left the the job I loved and, and went through Quantico in Virginia, became an FBI special agent and worked cyber terrorism cases. And as you mentioned in the intro, assisted with the analysis of the digital evidence on the anthrax investigation, which was which was quite fascinating. But after a couple of years of doing cyber terrorism, I I went back to CIA as a contractor and continued with the uh, cyber operations game. I just absolutely loved it. When I I left the federal government, I moved back to uh, Phoenix and became a beat cop again because I valued that experience so much. I wanted to keep those skills sharp. 
I also uh, became the assistant chief agent at the state agency there, investigating computer tampering, money laundering, fraud, and those sorts of things. And when I left government altogether, I joined a startup in Silicon Valley called Shape Security. And Shape Security, all we did at the time was use client-side signals to identify bots. That's, that's what we did. And then F5 acquired Shape Security a few years ago. So now I am part of F5. So for the last six or seven years or so, all I've been doing is studying bot traffic for the global 2000. Wow, that's pretty impressive. And you are right. People are drawn to the terms of FBI and CIA. I've interviewed a gentleman who is a special agent in the FBI still to this day, and multiple people who are ex CIA or NSA or you know worked in the police department. But I am curious: is the CIA and the FBI similar to the movies? Or I've heard there's a lot more paperwork involved, though. Well, there's certainly a lot more paperwork. Neither neither are like they're portrayed in the movies. And I'd I'd say that the the big difference is if you you look at the the movies about this, they've got typically one person that does everything. You know, they they speak the foreign language, they they're fluent in the culture, they're a computer hacker, they're a lock defeat person, they're a flaps and seals specialist, they're everything. And those people don't exist in CIA. In reality, those operations are conducted by people, like dozens of people, who all bring something of, of value to the, to the operation. So that's really where the movies get CIA and FBI wrong. Yeah, okay, interesting. Now, you mentioned something before, Dan, around interviewing criminals. I've done a lot of research. I've interviewed a lot of people of your caliber. I'm curious to know, in terms of interviewing a criminal, is there certain sort of things that you notice straight away when someone's lying? So for example, one of the things that I, I, I've read from a ex-BI agent and she worked on the President of the United States security detail and she mentioned that people, their details, like it doesn't add up, like they forget things. And then that way, when you're sort of cross-checking to say like, was it before or after, their story seems to change. But is there anything just, you know, by seeing people that you can sort of tell that they're lying from, you know, having extensive experience interviewing criminals? Yeah. Hands down, there's something very, very simple. They, they repeat the question. It, it happens all the time where, you, you know, you walk up and you, you say, hey, excuse me, what is your name? And they go, my name? <laughs> you just know right away. They're in their head. They're thinking about, about a fake name to give you. If you say, hey, may I see your driver's license? They say, your, my driver's license? So it's a stall tactic. The very, if the very first words out of their mouth in response to your question is a stall tactic, then there's a really, really good chance that they're going to be going right into some deception. Yeah, that is interesting. Because like when you think about it, like, you wouldn't second guess like what your name is. Like, you know, your name's Dan, right? Like, so why don't they sort of think this through when, you know, obviously I'm not a criminal, so I don't think like one necessarily, but wouldn't they have this sort of thought out or like, it just seems that that's like a very obvious way to tell that someone's lying. So I don't know. I'm curious about your thoughts. Well, you're right. They're really, really good criminals do think it through and the good criminals aren't typically caught. If I'm talking to a criminal, it's because they're not, they're not a very good criminal. You know, I, I really, I firmly believe when it comes to white collar crime, law enforcement, we catch a very, very small fraction of those criminals. In fact, I remember I used to do extradition where I would fly across the country and uh, pick up somebody who had been arrested, but on a, on a warrant out of Arizona. 
So I would I would fly to the jail, check them out of jail, take them to the airport, board the plane with them, and escort them back to the Phoenix area where they could answer to their to their crimes. But that gave me oftentimes a three or four hour flight where I am sitting next to a criminal and they have no place to go. They can't go away. They're wearing a, a leg shackle. And, you know, we just talk the entire, the entire trip. And one guy in particular, he had been arrested for a white collar crime, types of forgery and fraudulent schemes. And I remember he said something close to like, he cannot believe that so many criminals walk into a convenience store with a gun, threatened to kill the clerk or sometimes kill the clerk. And they leave with, you know, $100, $120 US. They get caught. They're going to, to prison for life. He never understood that mindset when he told me he could steal hundreds of thousands of dollars in a week and none of it put anybody in danger. It was a white collar crime. If he got caught, he was going to do probation. And uh, he was absolutely right. And I believe there's some uh, some songs. I forget who, who sings it, maybe Don Henley, but said that, you know, a man can steal a lot more with a briefcase than any man with a gun. And that, that those are the adversaries I've been up against for my career. Yeah, you're so right. Like the risk versus reward doesn't seem uh, worth it for 120 bucks. But I mean, I've spoken to the global cybersecurity advisor for ESET, Jake Moore, and he worked, I think, 14 years in the police, well, digital forensics uh, police department in the United Kingdom. And he basically was saying like, look, we, we catch 2% of these cyber criminals and of the 2%, like it's really hard to prosecute. So again, going back to the guy on the plane, like it makes more sense, right? Because then you've really got to follow it through. It's convoluted, especially if I commit a crime in the United States and then I and I leave and there's no treaty with the US, for example, like you just sort of, no one ever really follows you up. So that's where it gets really interesting and really hard to to catch these criminals. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you, you're hitting a, a point that is really, really resonates with me. When I, when I did you know, work white collar crimes, I would be called to a, to an elderly person's house and the, the elderly couple would tell me they lost their life savings because of a, of a scheme that targeted them. And I remember just feeling for this couple that, that you know, it's unlikely we're going to be able to get their money back. It's unlikely we're going to be able to catch the perpetrators because it's an international scheme. But I really wanted to try and I wanted to open a case. So I went to my leadership and I said, hey, I really, you know, there, there's some leads here. Let me follow up on these leads. And I was told that we just don't have the resources and to not open a case. And, and then a few days later, I found myself um, working with, you know, a SWAT team, a couple air units, some tactical teams, some command units. Those are the big, you know, buses that have been converted into command stations, probably 30 agents. And we are all doing a raid on an illegal gambling operation. And I remember thinking, we don't have the resources to investigate that poor elderly couple who lost their life savings, but we have the resources to, to spend on this illegal gambling operation. So I, I think that law enforcement uses, we don't have the resources too often. And I, I think really it's just, a, they have, a, the priorities are off. You know, they'd rather investigate crimes where the state is the victim so that they can seize assets and then use those assets to, you know, fund police operations. And I get the, the uh, why that's attractive, but I think that 
we're, we're letting down, at least in the US, we're letting down a lot of individual victims who are losing their life savings and, and aren't seeing justice. And you're right. Oftentimes, this immediately you know, leads to someplace overseas where we don't have a treaty. So I think it isn't just local and state and federal law enforcement. It's also the administration and the State Department. I think they need to apply a lot more pressure to these countries that don't cooperate with our investigations, a lot more pressure. And if they did that, then may- maybe we'd be able to raise the catching 2% to maybe catching 5 or to 10% or, or even even more. But yeah, I, uh, that's a real a touchy subject for me because I've had to look many of these victims directly in the eye and tell them, no, we're not going to open an investigation. Sadly, I've even had one victim take his own life because he lost his life savings and, and we weren't doing anything to get, to get it back for him. Gosh, that's terrible. So what's so just focusing on that poor elderly couple for a second, and that that poor victim, that is that is an awful experience. But obviously, cybercrime's getting like more out of hand. It's easier to do. It's harder to get caught. And if you are caught, like it's a slap on the wrist. You're not really doing like significant jail time, as I've as I've been told. So what's going to happen now? Is is it just going to be that, as you mentioned before? Government agencies are just going to be focused more on like your illegal gambling operations and things like that, like real sort of high-end criminal syndicates and like drug mules and all these types of things. And the the people that are just regular people that you know got scammed or whatever happened, are we going to see a large sort of deficit of this, or what? Do, what do you sort of think? Well, this isn't a, a recent phenomenon. This has been going on you know for decades, administration after administration after administration, just. Uh, you know, they, they all have their different ideas, some good, some bad, but n- nobody has made the individual victim the focus because at least in the United States, we have a lot of search and seizure laws that uh, if we if we seize a bunch of assets that were, that uh, a bad actor accumulated through committing crimes, committing fraud, then he, he loses those assets. It could be uh, an expensive sports car, it could be expensive watches, it could be cash, it could be cars. But then the state is able to seize that and uh, and and sell it at auction and uh, and take all of those th- those proceeds and use it to fund police operations because there's no victim because in gambling and and drug investigations the victim is the state so you know you know I I did actually use search and seizure laws for individual victims before because the the, the same rules apply if you know a bad actor defrauds an individual. And uh, has you know millions of dollars, then I could I could seize those millions of dollars and give them back to the victim. But you know that's not a very popular thing to do in law enforcement. What's more popular is to focus on those laws or that are violated, where the the state or the government is the victim, so that it's the state and the government who gets to keep the proceeds. Wow. Okay, that is really interesting. The other thing that I'm curious about with your experience and your tenure in the space, have you seen that criminals, I mean, yes, we, we speak about maybe the not so intelligent ones and that's why you know that they're criminals, but do you think that the capability of criminals is just getting inherently better because there's so many things you can do now, you can be online, that you, there's anonymity, there's you know pseudonym profiles, there's all sorts of things that people can hide behind to not get caught. So do you think that that's increased in terms of I guess, the sophistication of criminals nowadays? Well, certainly I think crime crime pays. I think 
you you're, you said your last guest estimated we're only catching 2%. That That's optimistic. I, I would think it's even lower than that. I think that the environment is very conducive to criminal activity. The internet, for example, it's easy to be anonymous on the internet. There's a lot you can do without leaving your house. And you have to make, a, make an error to, you know, for your true identity to be leaked or to be revealed. And the good criminals don't, don't, make, those, don't make those errors. So yeah, I think things like a coin and hosting services and VPNs and botnets and open proxies, these are all Tor, these are all things that enable a person to engage in whatever activity they want online and, and do it without ever, you know, being identified, let alone apprehend. So yeah, it's, uh, I think that the, the, the government at the state, local and, and uh, federal level and international partners are all going to have to get really, really serious about this. I also think telecommunications companies can do, can do more. I don't know about you, but I get several robocalls a day, typically attempting to trick me into downloading something or to you know, taking a call where they're going to tell me that I need to pay an IRS debt or some sort of tax debt using gift cards. I mean, it's, uh, it's really bad. And I know in ANZ, there's a lot, of, a lot of robocalls right now because of some breaches. A lot of PII is out floating around and it didn't take long for the criminal organizations to try to use that PII to advance uh, some social engineering schemes. So yeah, the, I can't help but be somewhat frustrated and impressed at the same time with some of the criminal schemes that I've, that I've come across. I just, I just think we have, to, we have to get a lot more serious about doing something about it. So in terms of the telcos, yes, you are right. So in Australia, Telstra released, which is their largest telco here, uh, they're cracking down on like scam techs. Now, has it reduced it? Absolutely. But you know, there's ways around it, bypass, absolutely scam calls. Like even now they're screening to say scam call like on your phone and stuff. But again, there's always going to be those people that sort of get through the cracks and then someone gets compromised as a result of it. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to see telcos figure out a way where people cannot spoof caller ID. You know, maybe allow a way to do it for law enforcement, but the spoofing of caller ID is something that is exploited by a lot of a lot of criminals to defraud people. If that's that one thing that telecommunications companies can all work together to figure out how to prevent that, I think that would go a long way. Do you think there are? Do you think they are sort of working on something to figure that I out? Or? I don't know. I don't know. I, maybe they're they're not incentivized enough because you think about it. They are a vehicle used to to engage in fraud. They're not they're not the ones losing the money. So oftentimes the 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 entities who are not losing the money they're not as incentivized to stop it as the entities who are losing the money. So email providers, you know, when they get when an email provider gets compromised, and then the person uses the content of emails to social engineer. The, the victim, the email provider doesn't lose any money, you know. Uh, so it's sometimes it's hard to convince email providers, telcos, you know, social media companies, it's hard to convince them to care about uh, how they're being exploited just because there's no financial loss for them. Yeah, no, great point. I think like, for example, I used to work in a bank and I used to report on the numbers the bank would lose. So they, they're incentivized because they're like, well, we're losing so much exactly. money on basic elementary things, right? That's so right. that would yeah. make an interesting interview. So speaking of bots, now in the conference, 
I think one of your marketing ladies came up to me and she says, oh my gosh, Dan Woods has been you know, t- retweeted by Elon Musk, which is pretty impressive. I think that I did your introduction and I think you got like ridiculous amounts of props from people. So I want to get into this. So obviously on the day you found out that Elon Musk tweeted you. So talk the audience through for perhaps people who don't know, like what happened? Well, just to be clear, he didn't retweet me because I, I don't tweet. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on any social social media networks at all. But I did do an interview, with, I believe, with The Australian. And during that interview, I had shared my, my professional opinion that it is, it is very possible, very, very possible that eight out of 10 Twitter accounts are fake accounts controlled by bots. And that made made it into the article. In fact, I think it even made it into the into the headline in the in the Australian. And apparently, somebody who knows Elon Musk shared that with him because he he tweeted a link to that article, and he also tweeted a picture of me, which was interesting because the article did not include a picture of me. So someone from his staff must have you know just Googled me and, and found an image. So what he tweeted was a link to the article, which was gated, by the way, I found that interesting, and a picture of me saying something like, doesn't sound like 5% to me. And I, I had no idea it was going to happen. I had, I had actually publicly stated the, the, the opinion that eight out of 10 Twitter accounts were likely fake months ago. I mean, maybe six, eight months ago. So you know, I thought if, if it was going to get picked up by anybody in social media, it would have been then. But then it's just something about the Australian interview. He, he picked up on it or somebody in his circle picked up on it and that resulted in the tweet. I didn't have any prior contact with anyone from Twitter or, or, or Elon Musk. I, so it was, I was a bit surprised when that, when that tweet happened. I only realized it happened because my Twitter or my phone just exploded. And yeah, it goes off now and then, but geez, I don't typically get you know, dozens and dozens of messages inside of a few minutes. And that's, that's what happened. Yes, sorry, you are right. It was, because I know you're not on social media because I've looked, it was, yeah, the tweet, yeah, he tweeted the article that I remember looking at. So what were some of, what were people sort of saying to you? Like when you said you got all these messages? Typically, they were sending me a screen grab of the tweet. That, that's what they were saying. Or not, not saying anything, just sending me a picture of the, of, the, of the tweet. And they asked, you know, what's happening? Is your phone blowing up? Do you really think eight out of ten are fake? Those sort of the sorts of questions that I that I got from people. So, do you think Elon Musk perhaps was blindsided by the eight out of ten? Do you think that's why maybe he tweeted it? Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. I know that a lot of people are surprised by that. You know, because I know that uh, Twitter asserts that roughly five percent of their accounts are fake, and then other people in the in the field said that they think it's higher and I see people estimating maybe 20 or 30% and I just think they're all they're all wrong they're all way off and I think that what what caught everybody's attention is that I went I went as far as I did that eight it's plausible that 8 out of 10 uh, of their accounts are are fake and I I could I could defend it it's just uh, it's not a bumper sticker answer you know I mean I've been doing this now for a long time and I've made a lot of observations there's a lot of nuances to to the bot problem and you know, in light of all the reasons that I have in my mind, I, I don't think I've ever been given a, a forum to kind of articulate the reasons, you know, one by one. So hopefully, we'll have a chance to talk about those. 
Yeah, most definitely. So one thing I'm really curious now is to get into your research. So what sort of led you down investigating Twitter? Was there any particular reason? I mean, you mentioned before around shape security, you were doing investigating a lot of things there. So did it stem from that or like what, what was the reasoning? Yeah, I, this is what I've been doing for a living for the last six or seven years is researching companies, looking at their, their web and mobile applications, looking at the language they use on their site, looking at the services they provide and identifying the, all the areas where I believe bots would, would launch automation. And over the years, I've just gotten, I guess, quite good at, at predicting it. Like I could go to a, a forgot password application and say, this one will not be targeted by bots. It won't be. And this one will be targeted by bots. And then we would, at a five, we'd go in line, we'd deploy our signals, and, and I'd be proven correct that, yes, the one that I said would not be targeted is not being targeted. The one that I said would be targeted is being targeted. We go into a, a retailer and I say, your gift card check balance application is going to see lots of automation. And here's the reason why. Your login is going to see automation. Here's the reason why. Your create account is going to see automation. And so over the years, I've just learned to spot applications, the incentives for why would somebody use automation against it, whether it's good automation or bad automation, what is the appropriate steps to take to deal with the automation. I mean, sometimes you allow listed if it's good automation, other times you take mitigating action on it if it's bad automation. So this is what I've been doing for years. And, and I, I didn't just do it at Twitter. I've, I've been doing it at lots of, com- hundreds of companies, hundreds of companies over the years. It just, you know, Twitter is kind of in the news, which is why I think some of my analysis be- became, well, more broadly distributed. Yeah, that is really interesting. The other thing that I read in your research as well, and I may, I may get some of the terms wrong, but you discussed the terms and conditions, which Twitter basically at a high level saying like, you know, we'll do our best to reduce like bots and everything like that. But that's obviously fundamentally like not true because if you're saying eight out of 10, like that's pretty high. So they're obviously either not doing it or they're not doing a very good job at it. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I actually didn't read the terms and conditions that I, I base my analysis on literally going to Twitter's website and downloading the app and using the app. I'm not going to, you know, spend a lot of time reading a bunch of legalese on a on a EULA. You know, I, I don't find that particularly useful. I, what I want to know is what countermeasures do they have? What incentives are there for people to create fake accounts and to use automation? You know, are their countermeasures effective? Is there a reverse incentive? There's just all sorts of other things that that shed light on what their bot problem is, and it it, it really isn't their you know terms of service. Yeah, this is this is where it gets really interesting because you are right in terms of like you know it's not much value because they're not really following that anyway. So one of the things that I saw is that they will try their best to reduce it, but then I guess it's counterintuitive to what's happening. So talk to me a little bit more about like the incentives and like every, what where your thoughts are at with this. Like, what are the incentives for, for all all the bots and everything like that going on? Well, look, if I had to just give you the the shortest explanation of why I think, I I would say, A, there's a huge demand for fake accounts. And I can go into that in much detail, like what those demands are. There's ample supply to meet the demand. There's an entire marketplace just to create fake accounts. There's, in my opinion, a a lack of an effective countermeasure at Twitter. And I, I know this because I tested it and it's ineffective. And there's a reverse incentive at Twitter to discover fake accounts. And anytime I saw those 
those four conditions, huge demand, ample supply, lack of a good countermeasure and a reverse incentive. Every time I've seen that at another enterprise, they had more than 90% of their, of their traffic was automation from bots. So those are the, those are the high level reasons, but uh, yeah, I can go into more detail on any one of those. You want to, you want to talk about the demand first? Yeah, most definitely. I think, I mean, if I can hypothesize, my theory would be people want more followers, right? Is that, that's the era we live in today. So is that correct in assuming that? Yeah, that, that you're absolutely right. Many, many Twitter users, not, not all of them, but many, they, they have this obsession over number of followers. And there's, there's a perception that the more followers someone has, the more interesting their tweets must be. So uh, yeah, you're right. Twitter users want more followers. In fact, any of your, your, uh, listeners, if you just go to your Twitter feed and search for the word followers, you'll look at all the the tweets you see of people saying, if you follow me, I'll follow you. Oh, I've got 10,000 followers. Help me get to 15,000 followers. Everybody wants more followers. So that that's one thing contributing to the demand. But who really cares if someone has fake followers? I mean, I don't. It's not really a big deal. But there's also a significant demand for what I call influence amplification. So imagine what you could accomplish if you had automated control over a million Twitter accounts or other social media accounts. If you had automated control over a million of them, you could use that, th- those accounts to, to rate certain products really high and then be critical of other products. You could, you could cause an advertiser to make more money. You could be the advertiser and you, c- you can make a lot more money by using your, all your fake accounts and bots to click all of your ads millions of times. You can make the, the truth sound unpopular and propagate lies. You could actually influence public opinion. And when you think about how elections, at least in the US, they, they're won or lost by a few thousand votes today, that you could use this influence to impact the outcome of elections. And that is of grave concern. And so that's what concerns me the most. It isn't the number, you know, having somebody have fake Twitter user or Twitter fake Twitter followers. Who cares about that? It's the ecosystem that feeds that demand. The marketplace can be exploited and likely is by a lot of, a lot of other actors. Yeah. Wow. That is really interesting. Yet yeah, most definitely shaping the narrative. If, if you're going to control a million accounts, you could say, oh, look, this shirt's amazing. It could look completely awful. But if a million people are saying it, it's that nothing draws a crowd like a crowd, right? So it's that That's whole right. theory that they're playing into. Yeah. That yeah. is that's wild. Okay, so now let's get back to I want to start though with the the more the followers piece. So this to me just sounds that we're just driving like artificial inflation on like someone's worth or something like that. Like does that if you zoom out, does that sort of like worry you in terms of like people are so focused on that? It does, but I think a lot of the people on Twitter, you know, you kind of look at who's on Twitter and it's, it's blue check marks and people who want to become blue check marks, people who, who really, you know, want to be more well-known because their business will be more successful if they're well-known. But that's a small, small percentage of people. Just anecdotally, as I travel, I, I ask many people at you know, airports and hotels, if they have a Twitter account, and it's rare, it's very rare that I find somebody that says, yeah, they have a Twitter account. So it, it doesn't worry me that so many people want more followers. What, what worries me is the, the ecosystem that feeds that demand can also be abused for very malicious purposes. And, and that's what worries me. And by the way, there is ample supply. If you just, 
I, I just did a little bit of research and I can I can go somewhere and buy followers. I could buy fake accounts. A state actor could do it, political parties, a PR firm, lobbyists, anyone could just go buy fake accounts that they could control. I, I actually I bought I bought a hundred thousand fake followers. Uh, I, it cost me less than a thousand dollars U.S. I bought them for one of my my test accounts. And I said earlier I don't have any accounts. I mean in my real name. I, I created a couple of Twitter accounts just to feed this analysis and this research. But when this is concluded, I'll be I'll be deleting them. But yeah, less than a thousand dollars U.S. I have over a hundred thousand followers now, and uh, based on the usernames of these followers and their their activities, they're they're clearly fake accounts. So there's not only is there a huge demand, but there's a huge, a huge supply to, to meet that demand. Wow. Okay. So the ecosystem part, let's get into that. Now, do you think that this is sort of like bred the whole like fake news and all this that's been going on out there? Because effectively, like what you're saying is, you know, it's not, it may be fake, it may not be, but it's the, it's the steerage of the narrative. Because if you have control over that many accounts, you're, like you said, influencing public opinion. Yeah. In fact, I like to use, there, there's a, a movie, a Netflix movie called Push. I think it's Netflix, but it's called The Push. And it, it, it's a movie about a guy who, who uses the art of persuasion and manipulation to convince people to do unbelievable things. And, and you know, he, he actually convinces somebody to murder another person, push them off the top of a building. And the way I encourage your listeners, check it out if you haven't. I think it's called The Push on Netflix. But the, the, the takeaway from that, that movie is that we are all impressionable. I know that some people want to think that they're not impressionable. They're an independent thinker and they're, they're, nothing could sway them from you know, what they know to be the truth. And, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to say that we, we all are somewhat impressionable. Some are more impressionable than, than others. But we all have a degree of, of you know, of, uh, of, of, I guess, gullibility. We can be, we, we can be manipulated. So, you know, if you have, if you, if you share an opinion on social media, you know, you think, uh, you think that house is blue and then suddenly thousands of people are telling you how dumb you are and that it's obviously not blue, it's red. Um, there are going to be some people who believe it's red after that. Now, some people won't, but sadly, people uh, are impressionable, and these 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 third parties can use, you know, millions of fake accounts, automation, to to wield influence and, and manipulate people, and that's exactly what I believe is happening. Yeah, no, that is this is really interesting and pretty pretty wild at the same time. So, okay, so how are we going to know like what's real? What's being influenced? What's fake? Like, are we going to get to a stage where we just don't know? But then it's going to become fatiguing if we've got to like, you know, cross-check every single thing. Like, what's going to happen? Well, you got to get rid of the bots. That's the, that's the key. You got to get rid of the bots. Everybody's voice should have the same influence. One person should not be able to amplify their influence because they're amplifying it through millions of fake accounts. The position, the opinion that hundreds of thousands or millions of people are taking could actually be the opinion of one person. And you need to be able to differentiate that. And, and you can't right now. You have to get rid of the bots. Now, now not all bots are bad. I think it's perfectly fine if a, a Twitter user wants to use automation to, to automatically retweet something with a certain hashtag. That's fine. The problem I have is when one person 
amplifies their voice or or uses fake accounts and automation to to well again to amplify their opinion and to make it look like it's not just their opinion it's the opinion of millions of people that's the dangerous thing and and twitter they're trying i don't i don't think they're lying about the number of bots i think that they're just uh, they're wrong because they 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 have confirmation bias and they they don't have an effective countermeasure in place so what's happening with the bots so you talk about the countermeasure like like doing anything now, or will we see a decrease? Will it get worse? Will it stay the same? What are your sort of thoughts? Well, I think it's going to get worse when we're approaching, you know, elections. But you know, no one will notice because no one knows their bots. They don't. They don't realize their bots. By the way, these aren't. These aren't. Some of the bots are really obviously bots. Like some of the my followers have the username Q with like twelve numbers at the end of it. And then another person that's following me is Q with 12 numbers, but the last number is incremented. You know, so it, these are clearly created using automation. They're clearly fake. But there are others that have legitimate sounding names. They're active. They tweet. They, they form opinions. And they're bots, but you cannot tell they're bots. So the only way to answer the question that, that you, you've asked, like, you know, are what what's next? Are they going to go up? They're going to go down. What causes them to become more active is for Twitter and other social media companies to get really serious about detecting bots. Because right now they have that reverse incentive. They don't really want to know how many bots there are because it's tied, you know, to their daily active users. They I mean, who wants to be the guy at Twitter who says, look, I think eight out of ten of our accounts are fake. Give me the budget and the and the staff to prove it. No, no one. No one. They're not going to do that. And what you need is, you know, somebody frankly, like F5, who's been doing bot detection and prevention for a long, long time. You know, we would go in and deploy our client-side signals, and then we would be able to give a report. They go, look, here's how many are, are fake accounts. Here's how many are bots. And then we'd be able to prove it with, with evidence. Right now, all I can do is predict it based on all the evidence I've seen across other enterprises, including, by the way, social media companies. We, we did go in line at another social media company and found that more than 90% of all of their login traffic was automated. That was jaw-dropping, obviously, for that, for that social media company. Think about what it did to their valuation, right? They thought they had, you know, I don't know, like 8 million subscribers, and turns out they have 800,000 subscribers. It's, uh, it's pretty devastating to a social media company if they learned the true scope of the bot problem. So I, I think that the Twitter, they just maybe have, they, they don't want to believe there's that, that much automation, so there's some confirmation bias. They, they want to believe that their countermeasure is successful. And really, there's no, probably not an appetite in there for anybody to, to really research the number of bots. So yeah, I, um, I'd love to be able to get in there and, and answer this question for sure. And you know, I'd be, if I'm wrong, I'd be, I'll be the first to issue a public apology for, for, for being wrong. But I, I'm, I'd bet a paycheck I'm not wrong. Do you think as well, Dan, so obviously you're saying like 8 out of 10, which is very high, as we know. You think that people more broadly, like you know, businesses are perhaps not aware of what the eight out of ten means. I mean, you've clearly articulated it today, which is why I wanted to get you on the show to talk about, you know, especially when you're approaching election and for one person potentially have the power to influence a decision. Do you think that maybe people out there don't actually understand the magnitude of the eight out of ten bot situation can create? Yeah, I, I think most people don't understand because you know. Oftentimes they don't. They don't really. I, I find that the people who who uh, 
don't want to know the truth are often people benefiting from the lie. And there are a lot of people who, you know, they have half a million followers and they, they want to believe that all those followers really care about their tweets. But I, you know, and, and you know, I'm kind of a wet blanket when I, I come and I say, no, half of your, you know, you don't have, you don't have that many followers. You're not that popular. They, they don't particularly like that. So the, this isn't a message that the, the media has, has uh, embraced and wanted to amplify. So I'm, I was very happy that you, you showed interest in it. The more people that we can educate on this problem, the more likely we are to, to incentivize the social media companies to get serious about it because it's up to them. They need to be serious about stopping the bots. And then it'll, it'll make the social media companies just so much better for everyone else. So yeah, I hope that uh, you know this sort of podcast and other outreach will will finally convince them to do something about it. Why do you think like other media companies don't want to sort of pay attention to it? Well, I mean, I look at those media companies without naming them. I look at their their Twitter accounts, and you know they have millions of followllowers and so I think they're the they, prime suspect of the uh, potential well that, that's, what, that's that's what I meant. The people who don't really want to know or propagate the truth are typically benefiting from the lie, and uh, they just you know nobody wants to to know the know the truth unfortunately and like just to revisit what i what i said about twitter i don't think i don't think they're lying i think there are a lot of hard working data scientists and engineers doing everything they they think they can to stop the bots but uh, look i was able to write a script that, that automatically creates fake accounts and i didn't encounter any countermeasure so it, to me that's proof that is proof that they're not they're not stopping the bots. I mean, I'm not even a skilled programmer and I was able to do it in a weekend. Can you imagine what a, what a skilled team of engineers and programmers could do when it comes to creating fake accounts? And by the way, I, I've mm. actually talked to some of these companies that provide followers and some of them that they have control over north of a million um, fake social media accounts not just Twitter, all the social media accounts, they have uh, more than a million for one. I just talked to one and they have control over more than a million. And, you know, there are dozens, there are countless of these companies that are offering these services. So uh, there's got to be hundreds and hundreds of millions of fake accounts. And now, you know, the number would, I think would fluctuate. I think, you know, their Twitter's kind of front end countermeasure isn't very good. You know, if you really get aggressive, you'll encounter a CAPTCHA, which human click farms solve all day long. It's just a speed bump for bots. Then all you have to do is change your IP address and you no, you no longer hit the CAPTCHA. But they are doing some things in the, in the back end, looking for fake accounts and then purging them. There's a lot of discussion on social media about, oh, Twitter must have done a purge recently because, you know, I just went from 2 million followers to 1.6 million followers. So they lost 400,000 followers overnight. So that's good. I like to see Twitter doing that. But as soon as they purge those followers or those accounts, you know, the companies are just creating new ones. So they, they've got to get more serious about stopping, preventing them from being created. You don't allow them to be created, allow them to cause all sorts of influence amplification. And then months later, use your backend ML or AI ML models to, to identify them as fake and delete them. The damage has been done then. You have to prevent them from being created to begin with. And that's what Twitter isn't doing very, very effectively. Suzanne, I'm curious that to, to hear your thoughts. So for example, Instagram, you can actually go online and they run like 
you know, if you put in the person's like handle, it'll say whether like how fake some of their followers are. Are, they, are those things like accurate, do you think, or do you think it's fabricated? Well, I'm not familiar with that particular service, so I can't comment. But I'm trying to think as you ask that question, are there, uh, what, how would I implement that sort of, yeah, I think it is technically, fe- technically feasible. I, I really do. Yeah. So, I, but I don't know about that specific service. So I, I don't know how. Oh, I couldn't even remember the service name now, actually. So then here's the other thing that's interesting. So as you know, in the last like, I don't know, five, six, seven years, this whole influencer marketing thing. Now, I believe it's on its way out because probably from everything that you said today, but if you had more followers, as you know, the more that these people could charge per post. So it was in their best interest to, I guess, uh, increase those followers, buy fake followers, all these types of things. But then I believe there was a law that was introduced to be like, if you're doing that, like you're actually committing fraud because you're claiming that you've got like a million followers when you've only got like 400,000, for example. Did you think that more of these sort of laws and penalties will start to come into place or it's just going to be so hard to monitor it though, won't it? it? Yeah, it will be very hard to monitor it, especially if you have the social media company saying they only have 5% fake accounts. I mean, if, if I have a million accounts and you know, who's to say that you know, all my, half of my accounts are fake? I mean, they have to prove that. And that's the disadvantage that where I am. You know, I, I have all this uh, experience and all, all of this uh, data from other social media companies and other enterprises and a lot of insights into bots and how they work over the last six, seven years. And still, I can't, I cannot prove that eight out of 10 are fake. The only way I'd be able to do that is if we actually deployed our signals and and did, did the analysis. And th- that doesn't appear like it's going to happen. So it, it's, I, I don't think that those laws are going to be effective because it's, Unless the social media companies get serious and develop the proof that you know, you know, twenty percent of somebody's an influencer followers are fake, uh, nobody's willing to do that as of yet. But uh, I think when they do that, then they can, then those sorts of laws will have some uh, have some teeth. Yeah, so I guess this sort of then leads into they're not going to want to do that because then they're they're a bit vulnerable, and that means they can't charge advertisers as much because maybe people leave the platform or whatever it is. So. Do you think there'll ever become a time where, I don't know, if it's F5 or whoever, like we'll start auditing social media companies, but again, they're not going to want you guys auditing them to say, oh, like actually nine out of 10 of your, your followers are fake. So I, I think that, do you see that happening or you highly doubt it? Well, I, I highly doubt that the social media companies are going to hire a third party to tell them the truth because once they hear the truth, you, they can't they can't unhear that. They can't unring that bell. And that you're, you're right. It's going to have a significantly negative impact on their valuation. So it's a question they don't want, to, they don't want answered. I guess if it were to happen, it would be if, if the government said, okay, as a social media company, because you have the ability, you offer the public an ability to create accounts and, and tweet or post or do anything to you know to engage in the public square we want to make sure that one person has one voice before you will be audited and and by the way just like the CFO could be held criminally responsible for for those audits if they're not accurate i think maybe somebody inside the organization should be held criminally responsible if the audits show that yep 8 out of 10 are are bots 
And for all along, they've been purporting that 5% are bots. So yeah, yeah, there's a path forward here, but you look, look at, at least in the United States, it would require it would require politicians to draft legislation and for it to become law. And I, honestly, I, you look at politicians and you look at the number of followers they have, and there might be a reverse incentive there as well. It, it might be that nobody wants to know the real number of fake accounts there are. I was just going to say that it's probably going to take government to enforce it, but then they probably won't because then that may hurt their game, right? Like who knows? I mean, this is all still speculation. There's nothing set in stone that we're saying here, but this is uh, this is going to be very, very interesting. So what you're saying is until there is some government enforcement, social media companies, which I get, right, they're not going to say, oh, okay, F5, come in and audit us. Whenever you use the word audit, people get afraid and no one wants to be told that because of all the other ramifications we've listed out today. So in terms of any final thoughts or closing comments, Dan, is there anything you'd love to leave our audience with today? Well, I guess, you know, just to, we, we talked about the five kind of different reasons, but we talked about it across the whole hour. So maybe just to summarize them, there's a huge demand for fake accounts and there's ample supply to meet that demand. There's lack of an effective countermeasure at Twitter and they have a reverse incentive that I think causes them to misinterpret evidence and, and get discover the truth about the number of fake accounts. And anytime that the I, I came across an organization where those first four conditions were met. We saw more than 90% of all their login traffic was from bots. So, you know, me predicting that it's, uh, it's, it's plausible that eight out of 10 accounts at Twitter are fake isn't, isn't a wild guess. It is rooted in, and I believe in sound reasoning and, and evidence that I've collected at F5. Well, I guess this whole... This conversation has been really eye-opening for for myself, but also for our listeners as well. So, Dan, I really want to thank you for your your, your time. You've been very generous with, with it, and I think that you've been an exceptional guest on my show today. So, I really appreciate for you for taking the time. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by MercSec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MercSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.